They say one man's trash is another man's treasure. It's kind of interesting to think about how two different people can view one thing as so vastly different in value. We appraise things based on lots of different factors. I'm always amused when I see a news story about someone who found something at a thrift store or a garage sale that ends up being very, very valuable. My wife and I can sometimes wish that were us, since we do enjoy shopping at thrift stores. And the closest thing that I've ever found to a treasure, I think, was a couple of years ago at the Goodwill in Geneseo, I picked up a book for $1.99 uh, that happened to be a very rare dissertation on 1 Corinthians 15. I looked up the value of it. I probably could have sold it and got 150 bucks out of it. But it's on my shelf waiting to be read. And that is the value that I ascribe to that book. Um, I will not part with it until I have read it at least. And by then it won't be worth as much. Especially when I mark it up. (laughs) Nevertheless, when we come to Matthew's Gospel and we come to this particular passage, I want you to think about how two different people can look at the same thing and give it a very different value. In the news stories about someone finding some hidden treasure at a garage sale or a thrift store, that's often the case. I'd like to share one of those stories with you this morning just to prime the pump. Uh, This story comes from 1992. A woman by the name of Terry Horton bought what she thought was a huge, ugly painting for $5 as a gag gift to cheer up a friend. She gave it to her friend who got a good laugh out of it, and it cheered her up a bit. But her friend didn't want to keep it. It was too ugly. So she gave it back to Miss Horton. She took it home, kept it for a while, but she never put it up on her wall because, again, it was too ugly. So eventually she ended up putting it in a garage sale. An art teacher happened to stop by and see it in the garage sale and told her that she should get it appraised just to make sure that it wasn't an original Jackson Pollock work. An appraiser verified that it was. Someone offered to pay her $9 million for it, but she declined. In 2008, a documentary film was put out that featured Miss Horton. As it turned out, there was a swirl of controversy, and to this day, it remains uncertain as to whether or not it actually was an original Jackson Pollock painting. Nevertheless, because of the notoriety of this piece and its story, now there are still collectors who would like to purchase it for upwards of $15 million. However, Miss Horton died in 2019 without ever selling the painting. She believed a fair price for the painting was somewhere around $50 million. Now think about this story. Somebody had that painting... And they dropped it off at a thrift store in a donation box. So that person obviously didn't recognize anything potentially special about that painting. Then the thrift store employees didn't see anything special about it. They slapped a $5 price tag on it and hung it up on the wall for sale. Then Miss Horton came, and she didn't see anything special or significant about it. She paid $5 for it, took it to give it to her friend who also didn't see anything particularly special about it, so that she didn't keep it. The art teacher, the one who had a little bit of expertise, did something somewhat amazing when you think about it. She didn't buy it from the garage sale and take it home for herself. She 
could have kept her mouth shut, bought it, got it appraised herself. Instead, she kindly and graciously encouraged Miss Horton to get it checked out. And then the initial appraiser, the professional, was able to examine it and identify certain features that suggested it was indeed an original Jackson Pollock work. At the time, he seemed to be the only one who recognized its true value, though that has now been called into question. Can you put a price tag on a person? That's what I want to think about this morning, talking about things found at a garage sale or a thrift store. In light of this story, can you put a price tag on a person? Said differently and maybe a little bit less crassly, how do you communicate how much someone is worth to you? How do you show that you value someone? This morning, we're not just asking that question in the abstract. This morning, we want to consider how we show how much we value Jesus, specifically. How do we show how much we value Jesus? We're entering Matthew chapter 26 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. We're going to see two different characters contrasted in the ways they value Jesus very differently. We are moving into the last couple of days of Jesus' life on earth Let's consider verses 1 and 2, Matthew 26, where we see Jesus' Passover prophecy. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus begins by telling his disciples something that they already know. He gives them two pieces of information, the first of which they know. They know their calendar. They know that Passover is coming in just a couple of days. But what they don't know, or at least they haven't accepted yet, is that Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over to the authorities to be executed as a criminal on a Roman cross. They haven't really grasped that yet, even though by now Jesus has told them multiple times. Last time he told them about this, he even got specific and said that he was going to be crucified. But now Jesus is adding information about the timing of that great and terrible event. And he's telling them that his death is going to happen in connection with Passover. So that they might understand the significance of his death in the light of the Jewish festival of Passover. It'll be helpful if we review some of the significance of that festival now. So that we can see how to connect Jesus' death properly with Passover. Passover provides Jewish people with an opportunity to remember and celebrate when God set them free from slavery in Egypt. It's the kind of celebration that we have on Independence Day, July the 4th. But it includes a kind of reenactment of what happened on that night as recorded in the book of Exodus. But while Passover is a celebration of freedom of sorts... More particularly, it focuses attention on how God rescued the Jewish people from his own judgment and wrath. Passover has to do with the final judgments, the tenth plague God sent against the firstborn sons in Egypt. Now notice, I said in Egypt, not of Egypt. The people of Israel deserved this judgment from God just as much as the Egyptians did. But God provided a way of escape, a way to be protected from the execution of the firstborn sons. Each Jewish family was to slay a lamb, 
And that slain lamb was to serve as a substitute for the firstborn son in the family. Once the lamb was slain, the family was to smear the blood over the entryway of their dwelling so that the angel who was executing God's judgment, executing the firstborn sons in Egypt, would pass over that home and spare the firstborn son of that family. By doing this, the Jewish people received the mercy of God, sparing them from judgment that they deserved. Now, Jesus specifically connects his imminent death with Passover. And to take in the bigger picture, God was again going to save his people from slavery. But not simply slavery to a human nation. Instead, slavery to sin. And God was again going to provide protection for his people from deserved punishment. But not simply the deserved punishment of the death of a firstborn son. Instead, the deserved punishment of hell. And God was again going to do this through the substitution of a slain lamb. But this time, in an ironic twist on the Passover, the firstborn son would not be passed over. The firstborn son of God would be slain. He would be the slain lamb of God. And Jesus himself is beginning to make that connection explicit for the disciples. Now, let's look at verses 3 to 5 and consider the priest's Passover plot. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The chief priests are responsible for teaching God's word to God's people. That's their job. They're here joining together with the elders of the Jews. These are Jewish laymen who have the responsibility for providing leadership and counsel for God's people. They're typically scattered throughout the land of Israel among the people. But now they're gathering together in Jerusalem at the home of the high priest in order to hatch this plot. Their plot is to arrest Jesus by stealth in secret, out of the eyesight of observers, so that they can murder him. Don't miss how utterly twisted the leaders of God's people have become at this point. They are plotting to murder a man who happens to be their own Messiah. They're plotting to break God's commandment, one of the big ten. This is not a crime of passion. They're not being stirred up by anger in the moment. They are premeditating to break God's law and murder a man. And indeed, there is another law that they are flouting here. Exodus 21, 14 says, But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Their plotting compounds their law-breaking. And their plot includes a timing issue. They don't want to do it during the feast. And when they say during the feast, they're not just talking about the single day of Passover. On the Jewish calendar, Passover occurs on a particular day, and then immediately following is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in their minds, these two are linked as one long holiday. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are linked together. The Feast of Unleavened Bread occurs over seven days, during which the Jewish people would continue celebrating the events of the Exodus. 
They'll continue celebrating what God had done for them in delivering them from slavery for a full week. Most of them will remain in Jerusalem for the week, and they will eat together in larger groups. But they won't eat leaven. They will eat all kinds of other things, and they will celebrate and rejoice together in Jerusalem. Jewish pilgrims from all over the world are there for the festival. They start flooding in a few days before Passover, so that by the time Passover arrives, the city is overrun with hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. And so this creates an interesting situation that the chief priests are concerned about in the midst of their plotting. I'm pretty sure their primary concern is that among the people who will be flooding into Jerusalem are Galilean pilgrims who will be very favorable toward Jesus. The Galileans like Jesus. He healed a lot of them. He performed miracles in their midst, and they were astonished at his teaching and impressed by his works. If the chief priests were to openly attack Jesus in this setting, it's possible the Galileans could step up to attempt to protect him. This is a recipe for civil war. And whenever Jewish pilgrims overrun the city of Jerusalem, you can be sure that the Romans are paying close attention. The Jewish people have a reputation for wanting to rebel against their overlords. You can see evidence of that in the Bible and certainly in Jewish history. They're known for being a rebellious people, not just against God, but against everybody else too. So when lots of them get together, celebrating a holiday to remember their independence, nationalistic, political fervor could boil to the surface. The Romans will be ready to strike at the smallest indication of a possible uprising. That would be a bloody affair indeed. A bloody affair indeed. I think this is what the chief priests are primarily concerned about. So they don't want to do anything that could bring the Romans down upon them to destroy them. So in verses 1 to 5, we have Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be crucified during the festival. And the chief priests and the elders are saying that they don't want to kill him during the festival. Who do you suppose is right? You know the rest of the story. Jesus is right. He is the one who remains totally in control. He knows every step that is going to unfold over the coming days. It is all unfolding according to plan. Not the chief priest's plan, but God's plan. Jesus has full confidence in every movement of the story, no matter how horrific, even as the Jewish leaders are plotting to murder him, even as Judas, one of his own, is going to turn him over to them. All of that is happening according to plan. And so Jesus remains in full control and fully confident about what is happening. But the chief priests are here fighting for control themselves. But that's not the main point of this passage. The main point of this story is not is, is found in what happens next. Not in the plotting, but in what happens next. We want to make sure that we give more attention here than we do to the chief priests and their plotting wickedness. What happens next features a woman who pours out praise upon Jesus. We're going to walk slowly through this part of the story because I want us to take in what this woman does before we look at the impact it has and the way the disciples on the one hand and Jesus on the other respond to her. We need to simply see her outpouring of praise 
and take it in for ourselves. So look at verses 6 and 7. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So take in the scene. Jesus is having dinner at a home in Bethany, and a woman approaches. She is carrying an object, an alabaster container of very expensive ointment. Now, when I hear the word ointment, I tend to think of something that's more solid than liquid and has to be squeezed out of a tube. That's not what's being referred to here. This is a perfume, very much a liquid that would pour quite easily, and it's very valuable. It's interesting to look at the different gospel accounts here. Besides Matthew, Mark and John give us an account of this event. Mark tells us what this perfume was specifically. It's a substance called nard. Nard is a particularly unique perfume for two reasons. First, it was primarily used to perfume dead bodies. And that will become significant as the story progresses. Secondly, nard is something that's an import to Israel. It's not produced naturally in Israel, and that's what makes it so expensive and valuable. It's imported from India. Even the alabaster container is imported, so that makes this doubly expensive. The price tag on this jar would be remarkably high. The alabaster would have been imported from Egypt. So you've got nard from India and alabaster from Egypt. Another thing to note about this object is that it's not like the, a bottle of perfume that you ladies might be accustomed to buying at a store. When I think of a bottle of typical perfume, it's typically small, but then only a small amount is used at a time so that it seems to last for a long, long time. What this woman has brought in is not like that. It's made for one-time use only. It doesn't have a cork that you can pop out or a sprayer that helps you diffuse the liquid inside. You have to break it open. You have to actually destroy the jar. And Mark's gospel tells us that's exactly what she does. She breaks this container open and pours it all on Jesus. This is something that she will never see again. She will never use it, never see it, never benefit from it ever again. It's a one-use item, and that, too, adds to its value. I'm belaboring this a bit because I want you to understand the value of this object. We don't get an appraisal of its value here in Matthew, but in Mark's gospel, the disciples appraise it for more than 300 denarii. That's essentially one year's salary. Knowing just how valuable it appeared to the disciples, if their appraisal is even in the ballpark... An interesting question arises. How did this woman get this? We're going to speculate here, but we'll do so on the basis of good historical evidence. Most women in the ancient world were not what we might call independently wealthy. So it's likely that she would not have simply gone to the marketplace and purchased this for herself. It might have been gifted to her by her husband, perhaps, or her father. However, based on the substance itself, nard, and what it was typically used for, burial preparation, such perfume may have been passed down to her in the family from generation to generation as a kind of family heirloom. 
Perhaps you have some family heirlooms that have been passed down through several generations in your family. For many of us, those items wouldn't necessarily be appraised very highly. They wouldn't necessarily be sellable on eBay. Rather, they have sentimental value. They have personal value. They're connected to your family. And so there's not just the monetary value attached to them, but there's also a sense of personal intimacy connected to them. I don't envision this woman going to the marketplace intending to buy something special for Jesus. It's only John's gospel that tells us that this woman is Mary, sister of Lazarus and Martha. Even that detail doesn't tell us anything about her social standing or her family's wealth. Rather, this perfume is something that may have been designated for her, perhaps as a family heirloom passed down for her to care for and be responsible for. And now she decides she wants to give it to Jesus, this cherished possession, something intimately valuable to her. Now, with that background in mind, consider what she has done. She has destroyed this object that not only had a pretty high price tag on it because it was an import, but also it may have had this personal, intimate value that can't be replaced by money can't be calculated in dollars and cents. Yet she freely destroys it, sacrifices it, pours every bit of it on Jesus to show how much he is worth to her. So consider your own possessions. Is there something in your life that you would look at and say, that is a cherished possession of mine? Consider why it's so cherished. Why does your affection rest on that object? Would you be willing, if you had the opportunity, to sacrifice it out of affection for Jesus? Because he is worth far more to you than that thing. But now, we have to take a look at the disciples' response to what they saw. Look at their pious protest in verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. They are outraged. They're shocked. They're angry at this woman for what she's done. They ask, Why this waste? They see what this woman has done, and they evaluate it as wasteful. They recognize the value of this one-use imported object, and she's destroyed it. Mark tells us that it could have been sold for more than a year's salary. They're thinking, if we had sold it and gotten 300 denarii in exchange for it, can you imagine how much food we could buy to distribute to the poor? In Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, Philip indicates that he didn't think 200 denarii could have bought even enough food to supply even a snack for all those people gathered together. Given the number of women and children that were probably there, a conservative estimation would be 10,000 total people. And Philip believes 200 denarii wouldn't be sufficient. This object, this perfume, is worth 300 denarii. So, if they sold this object for 300 denarii, perhaps, perhaps, they could feed a few thousand Poor people, a single meal. Historically, Passover was a time when the Jewish people were extra generous. 
They were encouraged by Jewish tradition to give more money to the poor during Passover. So it makes sense that the disciples would be thinking about the poor and how they could help the poor at this time. You might remember from John's account of the Last Supper that when Judas leaves, the disciples are wondering if he might be heading out to give money to the poor, since that's probably something they had done every year before. Another reason that it makes sense that the disciples would be thinking about giving money to the poor comes from Jesus' earlier conversation with the rich young ruler. Matthew recorded Jesus' words in chapter 19, verses 21. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. The disciples probably remember that conversation. It had bothered them terribly at the time. And they might be thinking that if Jesus expected that of the rich young ruler, then surely he would expect the same thing of this woman who has such a valuable treasure. They see her actions as a waste. They're focused on the monetary value of the object and they're preoccupied with how this could be used to help other people. That sounds good and pious. However, what they're really communicating is, Jesus, you don't really deserve this. You're not really worth this. You're not really that valuable. Surely that's not on the forefront of their minds, but that is nevertheless what they're communicating. There's another wrinkle in this story that comes uniquely from John's gospel. John alone tells us that Judas is the one who voiced this complaint. And then John alone tells us some character traits about Judas that if he didn't tell us, we would never know. Judas, John tells us, was a thief. And he used to express his thievery by stealing from their own money. And Jesus, Jesus put him in charge of their money. Noodle on that for a while. Judas handled their communal fund. He was in charge of it, responsible for it, and he used to help himself to some of it. Because he was a thief. John alone tells us that. And knowing this casts a bit of a dark shadow over this complaint. When we pull the gospel accounts together, we can see two sides to this complaint. I think most of the disciples agreed with the complaint as Judas expressed it. Because they were genuinely thinking about the poor. But Judas was not. He is the hypocrite among them. He is actually thinking about how much money he could get out of the deal. Jesus' reply will address the issue of the poor. So I think that's what most of the disciples are really concerned about. This perfume is a one-use object used to benefit one person only one time. The disciples believe they could sell it in order to benefit lots of needy people. But what she has done benefited only one person, Jesus. It's going to make Jesus smell very nice for a few hours. The disciples wonder, what good did that really do? But they haven't really understood the significance of the woman's actions, nor have they really valued Jesus the way she does. So let's consider Jesus' piercing reply in verses 10 to 13. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Notice how Jesus stands up for her against his closest friends. They were wrong. They were mistreating her. They were devaluing not only him, but also her. And he stands up for her. He defends her. He comes to her aid. He corrects them in front of her and in front of everybody. I love this about Jesus. It's a good example for those who would be followers of Jesus. For those men in particular who would be gospel men. Stand up for women when they are abused or oppressed. And you'll be acting like your Savior. But Jesus goes on to explain what he's talking about. The last sentence of verse 10 might be a case of over-translation. Most versions are similar to the ESV, which says, For she has done a beautiful thing to me. I agree this was beautiful. However, the sentence could more literally be translated as, For she has worked a good work for me. It's the same phrase Jesus used in Matthew 5.16, where he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What this woman has done is a good work that gives glory to Jesus and to his Father. Thus, the phrase in 26.10 is trans- is, that's translated a beautiful thing, but it's translated as good works in 5.16. And it is one typical phrase throughout the Bible for good works, good deeds. We'll come back to the significance of this point at the end of our time. But for now, how does this woman show how much Jesus is worth to her? She does a good work. Jesus corrects the disciples thinking about the poor. And he does so in a very interesting way. Look at verse 11 again. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Notice what he's doing here. He's indicating that his time on earth, in the flesh, is a unique time. Special time, not normal time. It's the time of opportunities to do things a little bit differently. Things that are out of the ordinary. This is not the only time that Jesus has spoken like this. I remember an earlier occasion in the Gospel of Matthew when some people asked Jesus why the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples were fasting, but Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. Do you remember his answer? His disciples were not fasting because the bridegroom was with them. They can't fast while it's feasting time. But Jesus also said that there would come a time for fasting again when the bridegroom would be taken away from them. And that time is fast approaching here in Matthew's Gospel. Thus, while Jesus is there with his disciples before the cross, before the resurrection... It's a special time. It's out of the ordinary time. It's time for special things to be done that can never be done again. This is not just a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is a once in history opportunity. One typical way that this verse has been taken really bothers me. This verse is sometimes twisted to say exactly the opposite of what Jesus is actually saying. Some folks take this verse to justify Christians not giving to the poor. Since Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, then we don't need to prioritize alleviating their poverty since they're always going to be here. 
Jesus is actually implying the exact opposite idea. As soon as he's gone from the earth, Jesus' disciples will always have opportunities to give to the poor, and we should indeed make that a priority. Jesus is gone from the earth. He's sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. He is not here in the flesh the way that he was then. He's actually quoting a verse here from Deuteronomy 15, which is pressing the point that God's people should be open-handed with the needy people around them and among them. Not only that, but the final section of Matthew 25, which we looked at last week, illustrated how the sheep are to be providing for the needy among Jesus' siblings especially. If you want and I want to show how much Jesus is worth to us the way that this woman did, one way we can do that is by actually providing the needs of the poor. That should be a priority for us. But this woman has taken advantage of a once-in-history opportunity. And Jesus is elevating himself here above the poor. Here, his value, his need, is even greater than that of materially impoverished people in the world. When we considered how Jesus answered the question about the greatest commandment in the law, we saw how he essentially boiled it down to two, summarized easily as love God, love your neighbor. But those are not two separate commands. In fact, Jesus means that we would demonstrate our love for God by our love for neighbor. Some people say, shouldn't we pour extravagant amounts of money into our worship, making sure we have the the top-of-the-line musical gear and the latest, greatest technology so that our corporate worship is as excellent as it can be? That is to miss Jesus' point entirely. Jesus is saying that while he was here on earth, there was a special opportunity that can never be repeated to show the devotion to him in this kind of personally extravagant way. So our priority as followers of Jesus, as worshipers of Jesus, is not going to be spending reckless amounts of money merely on what we do in this building. Instead, we need to prioritize sharing our resources to alleviate the poverty we see around us, both material and spiritual, to care for the needs of the people around us, both material and spiritual. We do that, I think, relatively well in this church. We do that through our support of missions, on the one hand. We do that through our support of organizations like the PRC. We do that through the People Helping People Fund. We seek to do that as a body here. And we will continue to do so to show how much we value Jesus. Jesus here elaborates on the significance of what this woman has done because the disciples obviously don't get it. And I'm not sure the woman really gets it either. I think this woman was simply seeking to do something good to Jesus to show him how much she valued him. That's all I think was in her mind. But truly, Jesus knows that he is about to be crucified. Do you know... What would happen to crucified criminals after they're dead? Their bodies were typically thrown into mass graves to be eaten by dogs. They do not get honorable burials. And Jesus is anticipating that he is going to die as a criminal in that way. Now, as it turns out, another person is going to show how much he values Jesus by volunteering to donate his own burial plot 
so that Jesus' body won't be thrown to the dogs. Because of the timing of his death right before the Sabbath began, he won't get the normal burial treatment ahead of time. And so this ointment, this perfume, serves to symbolically prepare his body for burial while he's still alive. The substance itself was fitting for that purpose, nard being one of the perfumes used for dead bodies. Then he adds in verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Don't you just love it when you can see biblical prophecy being fulfilled before your very eyes? Because it's happening right now. It's happening every time you read this story in Mark's account, in Matthew's account, and in John's account. I'm telling you the story of this woman. And Jesus says that's exactly what would happen every time we preach the gospel from this story. It's wonderful to notice that. But notice that this one act of all the stories in the Bible, of all the stories in the gospels even, of all the stories that we could point to that point to Jesus' work on the cross that illustrate or highlight or show us something significant about Jesus' death, about the gospel, not to mention my own conviction that so drives my preaching that everything in the Bible connects to the gospel. Somehow, out of all of them, Jesus singles out this one in a very special way. Jesus is instructing us to give more attention to this story, to what this woman has done. I'm not mining the depths for you here of the significance of this story. That's for you to do for the rest of your life. The wonders of the gospel are here. And what she has done for Jesus and the example she has set for us is important. And that's what we're going to dwell on at the end of our time together. But there's one more piece of this story that must be considered. Verses 14 to 16 tell us about Judas and Judas's price. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We all know the story of Judas. It's a grievous story. It ought to make us sad. It ought to confuse us and vex us. The gospel writers don't tell us much about this man's motivations. Why did he do this? Here we get a piece of his motivation, but you must know how complex human motivations are. It wasn't just the money that drove him to betray Jesus, but it was a part of it. Judas went to the chief priest to initiate this whole process. Betrayal. You've got to imagine that the chief priests saw Judas as an answer to prayer. Think about that. These priests saw Jesus as a threat and a problem, and they wanted him out of the way, and Judas shows up. Surely these priests had been praying, asking God for such an opportunity. Matthew tells us some interesting things that the other gospel writers don't mention. Matthew indicates that Judas is basically ready to betray Jesus for anything. He basically says, name your price to the chief priests. He says, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? 
And it seems that this woman's action has driven him over the edge. The way that she values Jesus and the way that Jesus seems to affirm what she has done is the straw that broke the camel's back. And so he immediately rushes out to go seek the chief priests, and he is eager at this point to betray Jesus. Matthew alone tells us that they paid him the money ahead of time. 30 pieces of silver. Matthew will return to this detail later in the gospel when Judas returns the money to the temple after the deed is done. And Matthew is then going to tell us that this price that was set for Jesus' life was a fulfillment of prophecy. Even this, down to the dollar amount, was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah and Jeremiah. Matthew will show that these 30 pieces of silver made up a sufficient amount to purchase a field, though we don't know how large a field it was. If the silver coins are shekels, as seems likely, then we can get a bit more specific about the value. During Jesus' day, one shekel was equivalent to four denarii, four days' worth of income for an average laborer. So, the amount Judas is paid amounts to about 120 denarii. That is less than half the value of the woman's alabaster jar of perfume. So, Judas was motivated by money. And I can't avoid reminding you of the significance of, your, of this for your own life. There are dangers to money. And the Bible tells us that from Genesis to Revelation and pretty much everywhere in between. I can remind you of the familiar 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This is not the only factor in sin, but we ought to think very carefully about how money can motivate us to do bad things. And it's not just the wealth of money either. It's not just when we have an abundance of money that we can be motivated to do bad things. It's also when we have very little of it. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool in England in the 1800s, summarized a lot of the stories that we read about in the Bible that tell us about what people do for money. And I like the way he fleshed this out. He wrote, For money, Joseph was sold by his brothers. For money, Samson was betrayed to the Philistines. For money, Gehazi deceived Naaman and lied to Elisha. For money, Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive Peter. For money, the Son of God was delivered into the hands of wicked men. Don't underestimate the impact that money can have on your behavior. As we close this morning, we want to think about how we can be more like this woman and not like Judas, but like this woman. How can we show how much Jesus is worth to us? How much is Jesus really worth to you? Each of us must answer for ourselves, and it's more than just saying, Jesus is worth everything to me. I'm sure I've said that plenty of times. You should say that sometimes. But more importantly, how can you show it? How do you prove that? How do you demonstrate it? What does prizing Jesus look like? The woman showed it by doing a good work for him. It really does come down to doing good works. That's how you and I will show how much or how little 
Jesus is worth to us. This is not some debtor's ethic kind of thinking where we're trying to pay Jesus back for what he's done for us. Rather, we do good works out of our affection for Jesus. I want us to become more comfortable with the imperative that flows out of the gospel. Jesus really does want us to obey him and to do good works. And this is not disconnected from our salvation. Now, don't mishear me. We glanced at this last week, but I'd like to revisit this briefly from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And I'd add on some more important words from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it clear that we are not saved by works. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then Paul adds in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation doesn't come as a result of good works, but good works come as a result of salvation. This is not an isolated truth. It's all over the New Testament. Works are connected to our salvation as fruit, as a result, as the outworking. We are saved to work. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. These good works earn nothing from God. Let me remind you of two other passages from Paul, and these could be multiplied, but these two appear in close connection with each other in Paul's letter to, the, to Titus. Paul is describing Jesus in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That phrase, good works, is the same phrase we see here in Matthew 26, referring to what this woman did for Jesus. You should ask yourself occasionally, am I zealous for good works? If you're not, don't freak out. Don't panic. Simply look back at the previous part of the verse and focus in very closely on what Jesus has done for you. He redeems us from all lawlessness. He purifies us by his death on the cross. When you look at that long enough, if you do have life in you and and focus in very close, if you are a child of God, if you keep looking at Jesus' death and see the value of what he's done for you, your valuing, your prizing of Jesus will rise and you will find the motivation you need to be zealous for good works. Next is Titus 3, 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
Don't feel burdened when you read in the scriptures or when you hear from the preacher. Do something. Instead, feel the freedom that God has given you and recognize the power that God has given you to do it. He is not sending you out there all by yourself and saying, now go do something. I'm going to be mad if you don't do it. I'm going to be disappointed if you fail. That's not our God. The relationship that we have with God through Jesus is such that He not only has set us free from our slavery to sin, He set us free to not sin, not do bad things, to not break the law. We have that freedom now. But not only that, He's also given to us His Spirit He poured out His Spirit on us richly, not stingily, not partially, richly, abundantly, incalculably, through Jesus to empower us to do what He calls us to do, what He commands us to do. And when you fail, when you struggle, and you will, when you don't do what you know you're supposed to do, don't freak out. God has provided forgiveness and grace that constantly flows. So being zealous for good works, your zeal, like mine, will fluctuate. It's going to do this number. It's going to go up and down and up and down. It's going to flatline sometimes. For a season, our zeal is pathetic sometimes. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything about your relationship with the Lord. Not by itself. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Just return to the gospel in that moment. When you see yourself feeling unzealous, lazy, lack of motivation, I don't really want to do what I know I'm supposed to do. When you feel that, go back to the gospel. Go back to Jesus. See Him dying for you on the cross. See Him rising from the dead out of the tomb. See Him sending His Spirit to live within you, to empower you to do. And I would wager that you'll find the zeal rising. Maybe not in that moment, but keep looking until it comes. I'm not going to stand here and try to define for you what zeal for good works needs to look like. I'm not going to give you a job description. It's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. I could summarize some things from the Scriptures. We're not going to take the time to do that today. To try to fit exactly what that would look like for each one of you would step us into the realm of legalism. We're not about that. We're about freedom to live in a way that pleases the Lord. So, what do you do? What do you do right now? What can you take away right in this moment? Trust the Lord to provide the opportunities, the desire, and the power. The empowerment. And then go and do in the freedom and blessing of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us? Help us to look at Jesus more consistently in our lives. I'm convinced in my own life that those moments where I just don't feel like doing what I know I should, it's because I'm not looking at Jesus. Help us to look at Him, to remember His death on the cross, and not try to pay Him back for that. He doesn't ask for that. 
There's no way we could. But help us to see how much he loves us there, how much he's given for us, and find in that all the motivation we need. And then to remember his resurrection and to know that we are united to him in that. We have been raised to newness of life, even though we don't feel like it right now. Would you help us? Would you restore us? Would you revive us and refresh us in those moments? Build us up by the power of your Spirit through the plain teaching of your Word. Grip us again with a vision of Jesus that helps us to see that He's more valuable than anything we could ever purchase, anything we could ever go after in this world, and help us to invest our lives in Him. Everything, all that we are, all that we have. May we love you, love him, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, all our resources. And may that then overflow in love for our neighbor. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the promise of empowerment. And thank you for the promise of forgiveness because we fail often. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all our sin. Help us to remember that in the moments where we're weak and in the moments where we doubt. You're so good to us. Help us to celebrate, rejoice, and remember that and to live out of it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Would you hang tight for just a couple of minutes? Got a couple of announcements.